0: Late on a Saturday night, towards the end of April, a boat leaves from near Lebanon's second city, Tripoli. It's an old boat, nearly 50 years old, built to comfortably hold maybe a dozen people at a push. Tonight, there are dozens on board, perhaps 60, maybe as many as 80. No one knows for sure. Among the travelers are Amid Dandashi, his wife, and their three children. Around 22 members of the extended Dandashi family are on the boat. The family are from the Tripoli suburb of Ibbe. It's one of Tripoli's poorest neighbourhoods. And Tripoli is one of Lebanon's poorest cities. It's become too much. Amid and his wife have taken the decision that anywhere must be better than here. The cost of living has spiralled exponentially over the past few years Electricity has become scarce. The war in Ukraine has started to impact the availability of bread. This is not somewhere they want their children to grow up. And so they find themselves heading west on an overcrowded boat. The muted lights of Tripoli fading behind them. A better future, surely somewhere over the horizon. But only an hour or two after they leave land, the boat is intercepted. Lebanese naval forces demand it turns back. The boat's helmsman tries to make a break for it. The navy rams the overcrowded boat towards the bow, splitting the hull. Seawater immediately pours into the old boat. In only a matter of minutes, it's sinking beneath the waves. In the chaos, Amid tries to catch a hold of his son, but grabs only a fistful of blanket. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Finbar Anderson. And in this week's episode, we're looking at the story of a tragic shipwreck off the coast of Tripoli, and how it's an all too familiar fate for thousands of people trying to reach a better life in Europe. A hot sun beats down on Amid Dandashi. He's a powerfully built man, but he sits crumpled and forlorn on the ground outside the entrance to Tripoli's port. Amid and his wife, along with Amid's brother, have spent the past few days burying their family members who died in the tragedy. Those whose bodies have been recovered in any case. Amid and his wife lost all of their three children, while Amid's brother Bilal lost his wife and two of his children. While almost 50 people were rescued that night, seven bodies were recovered in the immediate aftermath. At least a dozen, perhaps as many as two dozen, are missing, presumed drowned. It's difficult to know exactly how many have left this way. The UN Refugee Agency says only three other boats have left Lebanon illegally so far in 2022, of which two were intercepted. But Hamid says the number is far greater. He says boats are leaving daily. Certainly, the number of people dying at sea while trying to reach Europe has been increasing over the past years. In 2019, 1,439 people died on these routes, according to the UN. In 2020, that number increased to 1,800. Last year, More than 3,000 people died at sea while trying to reach Europe. Back at Tripoli's port, a crowd, perhaps 200 strong, has shown up to put pressure on the army to step up its rescue efforts. But the crowd is kept at bay, held at the entrance to the port by a line of soldiers. I'm sitting on the tarmac, just in front of Ahmed, As he tells his story, a crowd gathers around him. Some of the men place supportive hands on Amid's shoulders. Amid tells me why he risked the dangerous route over the Mediterranean. There is no future in this country, he says, and so he dreamed of taking his children to Europe, where there would surely be nurseries, schools, universities, healthcare. In Lebanon, he tells me, there's no water, No electricity, my daughter uses an inhaler, although, he reminds himself, she's still lost somewhere underwater. Everyone you see is living in misery, Hamid says. They're in extreme pain. As he talks, he seems to draw some strength from the supportive crowd around him. His voice gathers emotion. He demands to be heard. His voice, he says, is one of the only things he has left. If you will not even give me back the soul that is underwater, Amid says, you will not take my voice away. I am dying a thousand times each day, Amid says. I wake up every morning not knowing how I wake up. I was used to having my kids around. Now I wake up and I see the whole world dark in my eyes. As he speaks, Amid's words spark a reaction in the crowd around him. Some of the men cannot hold back their own tears. I surrendered myself to the water. But God kept pulling me up, he cries. Why didn't you let me die? It's okay. Let me die. Amid lets himself get swept away in his own emotions. My son, he sobs, he was hoping to live on a farm in Holland. He wanted to raise chickens. The crowd eventually swallows Amid up, trying to console him. I step away, and on the edge of the crowd I notice a young man with a bald head and a long, straight beard, wearing a camouflage t-shirt. I've seen him before. Muhammad Abrash is a Tripoli native. His name is tagged on walls around the city, on the corners of the murals he's painted. I first met him during Leblon's 2019 uprisings, when he was painting an abandoned building in Tripoli's and Nord Square in the colours of the Lebanese flag. It was a bold, optimistic statement about a city hoping to transform itself. While he painted during the day, the square would fill up with excited protesters, until by the evenings it was a mass of energy. Tripolitans seemed to be throwing off the image bestowed on the city, the image of an impoverished, neglected Tripoli ridden with crime. Abrash and his fellow Tripolitans were reclaiming the city as vibrant, optimistic, full of potential. The city earned the nickname, the Bride of the Revolution. That seems a long time ago now. Abraesh watches on as the crowd confronts the seemingly indifferent army recruits lined up in front of them. He's planning to leave Lebanon, he says, just as soon as he finishes his studies. With his skills, his degree, and the little money he's saved up, he might be able to get a visa out of here. But he understands why people without any of those choose the more dangerous route. So that people cannot wait And there are no electricity.
1: Uh, The food, uh, nobody can uh, can bring it because uh, there are uh, a big number to buy it. And uh, the hospital is so bad. And there are no no education, good, no good education. There are nothing good in Tripoli. So they prefer to go outside Lebanon. Uh, With this, uh, with boats or anything, because no passport to go with uh, airplane, airplane, yes, and to go with the cars or bus or everything, there are just Syrian or Syria around Lebanon, so we cannot go. So this, uh, I think, uh, the sea is uh, the best choice. There are no no option. Just, uh, just, go with what...
2: You know, what we've seen in recent days uh, is in part the product of um, the, the economic uh, collapse of Lebanon over the last couple of years, last two, three years, um, which has really accelerated a much longer term process of the shrinkage of middle class and kind of the, the growing um, precarization, growing immiseration of large sectors of the Lebanese population, you know, where we now have a very significant proportion of the Lebanese population living below, below the poverty line.
0: Andrew Arsan is a professor in Arab and Mediterranean history at St John's College, Cambridge. The desire to leave Lebanon, he explains, has existed as long as, indeed longer than, the country itself.
2: So migration from what is now Lebanon, uh, what becomes Lebanon in the 1920s, uh, really begins in the 1880s or 1890s from Ottoman Mount Lebanon, in particular this uh, smaller Ottoman uh, province, but also from adjoining regions uh, parts of what is now Lebanon, but also parts of what is now uh, Syria. Uh, and that migration, that, those waves of migration that begin in the 1890s and really pick up speed uh, over the course of two decades and into the, the First World War, and they're brought to a stop by the First World War, uh, really um, head predominantly towards uh, North and South America, towards the United States, but also towards Brazil, Argentina, uh, Mexico, uh, parts of the Caribbean, uh, and also uh, to a smaller extent towards West Africa. And so really all along uh, from the beginning you see this interaction of local factors very specific to Lebanon and to lebanon's uh, economic fortunes uh, waxing and waning economic fortunes uh, but also um you know the, the the combination of that with global factors um you know with, with the fortunes of the global economy uh, with the rise of particular uh, economies you know the, the the pull factors of you know the, the growth of the us economy in the late 19th century or of the gulf economy uh, the Arabian peninsula economies and the from the 60s and 70s onwards, um, and a pattern becoming established of uh, people thinking of migration as a viable, uh, a meaningful economic uh, strategy—you know, a way to a way to, to achieve social mobility and to achieve better standards of living—you um, know, between generations.
0: In fact, it's this early period of migration that Arsene considers to have most in common with what happened in Tripoli.
2: So what I'm trying to say is that you know, up until relatively recently, um, migration uh, would have worked through relatively conventional means, people trying to secure you know, visas to Canada, to Sweden, to wherever it might be, um, and then traveling by plane you know, through uh, very standard uh, channels. Um, 100 years ago or, or more, 120 years ago, migration would have involved uh, the kinds of illicit networks of what we now call people smugglers. Migrants would often have to pay a fee to ticket agents of the large shipping companies that operated in Beirut and other ports of the Syrian coast. Uh, But they would also have to be often smuggled offshore uh, on small dinghies, on small boats. And then again, you know, once they arrived in European ports, there again would be economic transactions. There again would be money exchanged to stay in very rough and ready, uh, very hostels, uh, very precarious circumstances in places like Marseille or like Barcelona. Uh, before they could secure onward travel to places like brazil like the caribbean like the us so in some ways there are far more parallels between um events in recent days and the very early history of lebanese migration uh, than there are with uh, the experience of people leaving lebanon uh, even in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s who would have left by you know uh, on on a plane for for a new destination in, in australia or in sweden or or wherever
0: as Arsene explains, the obstacles facing migrants are imposed both by the states they want to go to, wanting to keep them out, and the states they come from, wanting to keep them in.
2: Uh, one of the reasons that people uh, resort to uh, people smugglers, to these networks of people moving people uh, illegally across borders, uh, or you know, uh, undercover across borders, one reason for that was that the Ottoman state was very keen to, to, to clamp down on migration from Uh, Ottoman territories. Uh, Like Italy, like other states in in the period, it doesn't want to see people leave. It's afraid of a kind of demographic drain uh, away. Uh, And it's also uh, worried about the reputational damage that migrants will make to the Ottoman state. You know, if poor, destitute people start landing on European shores, um, what effect will that have on the image of the Ottoman state in the period?
0: Ibrahim Marouf knows only too well the challenges facing migrants both in Lebanon and at their destination. A Palestinian born in Lebanon, he successfully made the journey across the sea.
3: They don't want the people to leave. They want them to stay there so they can use them. They are using them as numbers. And if the people start leaving and they were allowed to, to, to leave, believe me, in one month from now, you will not find a single Lebanese person in Lebanon.
0: Marouf knows firsthand how people smugglers can offer what seems like a good solution to desperate people. Having set off from Lebanon seven years ago, he's only recently been given leave to remain in Cyprus, where he now lives with his wife and children. You might hear them in the background.
3: And I heard about many ships or boats left from Lebanon and they reached Germany. They went from Lebanon to Turkey, and from Turkey they moved and etc, etc. And they ended up in Germany, and one of them were my friends, a family that we know, we knew. But I wasn't willing to do it until the very end, she was the smuggler, and uh, she came to our house because she was a friend of our, of us, or of our friend, I I didn't knew that she was the smuggler, I never knew that she was a smuggler, she was just a friend and a neighbor. And uh, she was talking to me and my wife and she, why you don't leave? I said, ah, how How am I supposed to leave? She said, I will tell you, I'm leaving. And I know some people who have the boat and they are leaving, we will leave together. You will be with me and my children. So she was trying to make me feel safe and that there is no risk because she was be with us and she will not risk herself and her children. And that was also a game and a place she was playing. She did that with us. She did that with many others.
0: Marouf says he and his family spent 15 days being bussed to different hotels around Lebanon's north coast until the smugglers finally decided the time was right to make the journey.
3: They put us in two boats, very, very small, unsafe boats. And I was looking, where is she? There was two boats in front of me, and that woman wasn't there, the Sarajah. So where is she? She, she? They told us she's waiting on the third boat inside in the water. They are like uh, before us, so we will have to be quick and to so we can catch up with them. So. I took my family and children, and then we went inside the boat. A horrible experience. Some some of the of the children that we had with us, uh, they were very very ill, and they were sorry. They were, were vomiting and all the time they they like dehydrated or something. And it was very dangerous. I don't find another word. So so dangerous. It's really, really like risking your life. And the oats is not with you. It's against you. It's not It's not like it's a boy or a girl. So you have 50% each. No. It's like 90% against you. I remember when I was in the boat, it was daylight. And I looked around me and I, was, I could see it was, was water. And it was a very small boat. I wasn't in a ship like like a cruise or something where you feel safe and you have safety boats. and, and No, 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 no. There was... 115 person in a boat two boats that is suitable for maximum 20 person. So the only reason why we didn't die is because it wasn't our time. It's not because we had a good captain, or the boats was safe or it was a safe trip. It wasn't our time.:
0: Even though he's now in Cyprus, Safe with his family, the news of the Tripoli boat tragedy forced Ibrahim to wonder again if it had all been worth it.
3: I, I heard my children and, and um, I, I remembered every moment every moment of that ship of that trip that I did, and how lucky I was that I arrived safely safe I, that that could be us, and it's not only us my mom called me from Lebanon, and she said. Was I stupid? Was I crazy to let you do it? I said, but we are safe. We are talking about seven. I said, even though I I shouldn't let you do that, you see, even though that I'm here and I'm safe, she said, I shouldn't let you do that seven years ago. How was I that much crazy? So yeah, when I looked at it, it it was very dangerous thing. And thank God I arrived safe. I'm a lucky person. Really, I'm a lucky person, and I'm just not like that. I'm lucky because I arrived safe. I'm lucky because if I was accepted, even though after a very long time, because there are still people who are still under the rejection and still fighting and struggling. It was very risky, and I don't advise anyone to do it, really, no. There are better ways. I don't know if there is a better way, but they should try to find a better way, not using the sea. The sea is a, is a monster. A sleeping monster and no one knows when it's going to woke up.
0: You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Finbar Anderson. If you've enjoyed this week's Beyond the Headlines, please subscribe to get all the latest episodes. And if you have time, we'd really appreciate a review. My thanks go to this week's guests, Ibrahim Aruf, Andrew Arsene, and to Amit Dandashi for sharing his story with us. This week's episode was produced by Aisha Khan.